Open again with me uh, to Romans chapter 6, and let's resume our study there. Uh, guys, um, having been off for 12 weeks, I forgot where Romans is. No, uh, that's not true. Um, it's it's uh, inappropriate, I think, to jump back in here assuming that we can pick up at the same place where we left off. What we need to do, just for the sake of um, uh, our understanding of the text, is to go back and get a sense of the context so that we can then go from there. What we will end up doing, Lord willing, is uh, uh, hopefully getting verses 5 and 6 tonight. But we may not make that. We may not make all of it. Uh, because we need to really set um, the context in which these two verses are found. So what I want to do for you is read verses 1 through 6, uh, which we don't normally do, but we need, since we're starting afresh uh, in Romans 6, let's, let's read the first six verses. Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as uh, of us uh, as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's what we completed in the spring. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, very honestly, to stop there is somewhat of an injustice because um, the, the thought uh, really continues throughout the whole chapter. But let me, let me remind you of what's going on here so that we can try to pick up with some degree of continuity. I, I want to I ask you to look again at how the text or how the chapter opens. It opens with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That is a question that was being posed by those who were listening to Paul teach the great doctrine of justification by faith. That is, his audience, in response to hearing him preach this glorious news of justification by faith, responded in this way. Okay, I think I hear what you're saying, Paul. And if I've got it down, then, then um, uh, how about this, Paul? Uh, should, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul, if you're saying that a man is not saved by anything that he does and he's saved purely by the grace of God, then, uh, then it just makes sense to me, says Paul, uh, Paul's objectors. It, it makes sense to me that I should go out and sin as much as I want because if, it's God's, if God loves to forgive, I sure as heck love to sin. So it just makes, it makes sense. I love to sin. He loves to forgive. So why, why not just go out and rip it up? So now that's our context, ladies and gentlemen. That question, that objection, that position, that, that piece of falsity is the thing that he is trying to, to address. And he does that by introducing... Actually, he really doesn't introduce it because it's found... It's found in John 15. It's found in 2 Timothy 2. 
But he introduces us, <clears throat> if I can use that word, to this. In answer to that objection, he introduces us to this thing that I've called union with Christ. His answer, his, his, his uh, strategy to answer no, of course he says certainly not, which is that, that Greek, uh, me, the, the Greek term is meganoitoi. There is nothing more firm in the Greek language available to the apostle than meganoitoi. He says certainly not. But then he begins to work out why this is such an absurd suggestion. And the absurdity of the suggestion is seen in one's union with Christ. This could not possibly be so because do you not realize that you are in union with Christ? And that's what he has addressed here. Now, before I go on to verses 5 and 6, I wanted to say just a couple of things about um, what you see the apostle doing here, which is uh, something that I, I, it fascinates me to watch him uh, react so when people, when the truth is at stake. Paul is a master theologian. He is, um, you know, he's a tricky theologian because sometimes he creates words. Um, there are words that Paul uses in the Greek language that don't exist. He makes them up. And so from time to time, his argument, and some, there are places where <clears throat> his sentences are so long and ponderous, it's hard to find out what's the subject and what's the predicate. But, in, but having said that, he is a genius, but underneath his genius is a heart that beats like a pastor. He is very concerned that the people not be taught something false because false teaching ultimately hurts. And so when he sees it, he reacts with a, with a measure of, of violence. The very idea that you would suggest something like that, certainly not. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing because he knows that ultimately, if, if how do I say it, uh, if mistruth or untruth sinks into the cracks and the crevices of your minds, ultimately you will get hurt. Let, let me try to illustrate, and, and I'm going to do that with my daughter in, in, uh, in presence here tonight. But my, the story I'm about to tell you came from my daughter. And um, it is, but I want to give you several others, but, uh, but this, is, this is just absolutely intriguing. This is the story. This was... The way it was told to me now, of course, she's only 22, and <laughs> I mean, who can trust a 22-year-old? Um, but th that this illustration was used in a local congregation. This illustration used in a local congregation. Here it goes. There were two brothers. One of the brothers was a Christian. The other brother was not a Christian. But, gloriously, and thankfully, this brother that was a Christian led his brother to a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. On their way to get baptized, this new Christian to be baptized, they were both killed in an automobile accident. One goes to heaven. The unbaptized one goes to hell. 
Now, gang, that's something that ought to make anyone with a love of people's souls angry. Angry. And that's what I think you see here in the Apostle Paul. If you, if, if you are subjected to that which is not true, ultimately, you will be hurt in all kinds of different ways. I, I meet with the youth staff every Wednesday at 1 o'clock, uh, 1.30. And uh, we, were, we have been studying J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And uh, what I've done, and it's really it's made the thing so much fresher than when I was just kind of lecturing it, what I do is I assign a chapter to each one of the, the, uh, the staff. And so they, they come in and they teach it to the rest of us. And this morning's chapter was um, uh, about trials, or this afternoon's was about trials. These inward trials. And, and uh, you know, you would think it was about my Job series, but it really isn't. Let me, let, I'm not going to read much of it, so relax, I promise. In fact, just a couple of three sentences. But this is the sentence with which he opens. A certain type of ministry of the gospel is cruel. That's the truth, ladies and gentlemen. There is a certain type of ministry of the gospel that is cruel. It's cruel to its proponents. To tell a family that, Oh, well, sorry, your brother, <laughs> well, I know he made a profession of faith, but he didn't get baptized. He's rotten in hell now. That's cruel. That's just cruel. But there's all sorts of other... Let me, let me read you one other sentence. And because... I just thought this was such a um, um, powerfully, it's not, not seven words. Unreality in religion is an accursed thing. To teach you something that is not true to reality, that is true to truth. Francis Schaeffer used to call it true truth. To teach you something that is not true truth is an accursed thing. And that... I say that because that's what I see the Apostle Paul doing here. Reacting to unreality because it is an accursed thing. But guys, I could... Um, um, you know, I have, I have heard of ministries where on, on Easter Sunday morning, maybe I've told you this before, on Easter Sunday morning, all in the name of evangelism, on the day where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to be celebrated, the name of Jesus was never mentioned in the worship services. Well, that's unreality. That's a false truth. All in the name of reaching people to not glorify the risen Savior on Easter. Unreality is an accursed thing. And we ought to, I mean, I, I think as a pastor, you, you should react violently to some silliness like that. Telling people uh, to that they can demand and expect prosperity. Giving them uh, promises or making promises to new converts that just do not square with the Scriptures. All of that's cruel. All of that's cruel. And so in, what you find here first and foremost, I think, is a man who loves the souls of the people that he's dealing with and says, I'm not about to let this thing go unchecked because ultimately you're the ones who will be damaged. Now, guys, by no means am I trying to suggest that everything that you hear from a pulpit behind which I stand uh, is, is 
unadulterated, 100% pure accuracy. But it ought to be. (laughs) Because there is a kind of gospel ministry that's cruel. It will promise you things that are not the truth. And then when you discover it, you are sent into an absolute tizzy spiraling down because you were promised things that we were never should have been promised in the first place and then all these other things that 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 we could get together and share notes on and discover the the that unreality is indeed a cursed thing and so um uh, i i introduce my comments for tonight by saying that's the context paul is reacting to a suggestion that is not true because it is not true, he takes he goes to great lengths. In fact, folks, teaching Romans six is not the easiest thing in the world. Romans seven is harder, but um, but one of the reasons that it's not easy is because there's so much repetition. But I'm suggesting to you that the repetition that may bore you, because I bore you comes from the heart of a pastor who is concerned about cruelty that would be inflicted on people that he loved. Cruelty inflicted because the truth was not told. Now, the specific truth that he's addressing that is being bantered about is this idea that, oh, 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 okay, because uh, because I'm saved by grace and not by uh, uh, by works, then I can live any way I see fit. He reacts with vehemence against such a position, and he does that by teaching us this great issue of or, or doctrine of one's or our union with Christ. There is nothing more precious in the New Testament than our union with Christ. Nothing, ladies and gentlemen. Um, You know, you've heard me say, and I've said it often, that the gospel is far better news than than you ever dreamed. And the fact that that somebody told you that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and he can spray you with a coat of asbestos so you won't burn in hell and stick a ticket to heaven in your your pocket so when you die, you go to heaven. If that's all you know, let me say that that's true. But it's far better than that. It's much better than that. Because you are brought into union with Jesus Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time in that in the spring, but I'm telling you, we're going to spend a lot of time in the fall because the, 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 the pastor Paul is concerned that this objection be overturned and that truth be known by his, uh, his audience because he's concerned that they get it, that they not be harmed. By that which is false. So, having said all that by way of introduction, uh, we come to what really is our text for tonight, verses 5 and 6. Let me read them again, and I'm not sure we can uh, finish them up tonight, but we'll see what we can do. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. I told you about the union with Christ, where there's that word united. We have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, be, be done away with it. We should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse seven contains a statement. Um, excuse me. Verse six contains a statement 
that is highly controversial. It's been debated for centuries. We'll get to it in a second. But let me tell you, let me kind of organize the text for you first. If you can just kind of uh, allow me to give you somewhat of a table of contents uh, of, of the text, because it, it, um, this might help. What you get in verse 5 is really a repetition and summary of verses 3 and 4. If you will go back and read verses 3 and 4, you will find that the same concepts, the same truths are being repeated for you in verse 5. Now, verse 5 consists of two halves. Uh, the first half, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that half is going to be expanded upon in verses 6 and 7. He is going to take that portion of what he has said in verse 5, which is a summary of verses 3 and 4. I told you it was repetitious. He's already said it in verses 3 and 4. He summarized it in verse 5, and now he's going to, say it, he's going to expand it some further in verses 6 and 7. Then he's going to take the second half of verse 5, beginning with certainly we also uh, shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, and he's going to talk about that half of verse 5 in verses 8 through 10. Now, but the issue remains our union with Christ. Well, let me just show you some things that, that I don't know that it will tell you everything about the text, but just some interesting things about the genius and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For instance, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Ladies and gentlemen, that word likeness is a very important word. It's important for, in, in this sense that our death and... We are, Paul is describing our union with Christ and he is saying we died with him, we were buried with him, and we would be raised with him. But our death and resurrection are not to be viewed as identical to that of Jesus Christ. And so he inserts this word likeness. Let me show you, which I think will, will make it very clear, if you'll flip over one chapter to chapter 8. Let me show you what he does there. He does the same thing in chapter 8, which I think will shed light on verse 5. Um, I'm in chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Do you see what the Apostle Paul has done? He said he's... He's come in the likeness of sinful flesh, but his sinful flesh is not identical to your sinful flesh. That would make him a man. Well, he is, but he's the infinite God-man. So it is, it is similar to our sinful flesh, but it is not to be ever considered identical. What happened to Jesus Christ in death, burial, and resurrection, what happened to him literally happens to us spiritually. That's why he inserts this word likeness. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, there is a death that, that we experience, but it is not identical to the death that Jesus experienced. Then you find the same thing in the second half. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, guys, here's an interpretive comment. I want to suggest to you that what, what, what Paul has in mind when he says in the likeness of his resurrection is really a, um, a simply another way of saying what he said in verse 4 when he talks about in newness of life. If you, I told you that verse 5 
was a summary of verses 3 and 4. Well, if you look at verse 4, uh, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now go to verse 5, the second half. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, how will our resurrection be similar to his? Well, it will be in this newness of life that we now walk having been joined uh, to Christ. Um, We died with Christ. To what purpose? To what end? What was the goal? In order that we might rise with Him. And having risen with Him, we are now walking in this newness of life. Now guys, let me remind you, what is He trying to correct? He's trying to correct the notion that I can be savingly joined to Christ and live a godless life. He said, wait a minute. I, am, I, am, I have died with Him, and I have also been raised to this newness of life. Um, just as Jesus is finished with, um, with this realm of sin that He lived in for 33 years, so have I. So am I raised to a newness of life, no longer to be identified with that realm of sin that I was identified with prior to having met the Savior. Um, I want you also to notice in verse 5 the word certainly. Um, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. That is, there is a, there is a certainty, there is a sureness because we, we died with Him, we are being raised to something new with absolute certainty. Again, do you see that that statement is addressing this false notion up here uh, that is mentioned in verse 1? This false notion that I can live just like I always lived, and still be in relationship to, to Christ. No, 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 no. no. If you died with Christ, you will certainly be resurrected to a newness of life. You will be, just as He finished with this realm of sin that He lived in 30, 33 years, you're finished with the realm of sin that you lived in for however many years. Now, uh, move with me to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, guys, here's where some controversy um, occurs. But first of all, let me show you something, or point out something. Notice what the Apostle Paul does in verse 6. Knowing this, that is something that he's done. He did it He did it in verse 3. He's done it in verse 6. He does it in verse 8, where he says, We believe... He does it in verse 9, saying, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, and he will do it again in verse 11. He is appealing to something um, or reminding us of something that we should all know. Um, There is something that we should know um, about ourselves, not experientially or experimentally, but we should know this by faith. 
Now, what is it that we should know? Well, what we should know is that our old man was crucified with Christ. That's what he says. Uh, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now, gang, store away that knowing. I don't know whether we'll have time. We might have to get to that next week. But um, this is something that the people of God are supposed to know. You are supposed to know that your old man was crucified with him. Now, gang, that old man, two words, has been the subject of controversy for centuries. Centuries. Um, what is in the of mind, what, 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 is, what does Paul have in mind when he says the old man? Well, let me tell you something that he, he cannot have in mind. That is, when he says, my old man was crucified with Christ, he cannot have in mind, it, and I'll tell you why in a minute, he cannot have in mind this carnal flesh of mine and all its tendencies. Because if that's what he has in mind, then a lot of us are in big trouble. Do you see that? I mean, because do you ever struggle with any shreds of carnality? Well, if you do, then that would prove that you're not a part of this thing because it says here, this old man was crucified. Notice it also says, was crucified. It does not say, is being crucified. It was crucified. It was something that took place in the past. This, this thing that Paul has in mind, or this, this thing that happened, took place in the past. It is not an ongoing thing. It is not happening presently. It's something that took place in the past. Now, I want to suggest to you that the old man that Paul means here is the old man that I was in Adam. That's what we've done here with this passage and with chapter 5, that there's been this comparison of the man in Adam versus in Christ. Well, that man that I was in Adam has been crucified. Now, the confusion occurs because Paul uses that same two words in other places differently. (laughs) For instance, in Ephesians 4, and he talks about putting the old man to death. He does the same thing in uh, Galatians 5. He does it in Colossians 3. Uh, But in those instances, Paul also is, or or issues a command alongside his statement. He does not issue a command here. What he is doing is saying there's something that you and I ought to know. Uh, And what we ought to know is that that old man that I wasn't at him is, is, uh, is dead. These appeals that he makes in Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5 and Colossians 3, he is able to make those appeals because of the truth that's contained in Romans 6. In those other passages, he is appealing to us to um, have nothing to do with the characteristics of that old man that I used to be in Adam. Cease living as, as, as if I were still in Adam. Now, guys, um, l- let me try to do this and then we'll shut up for the night. Um, I want to go back to this knowing this, this thing of knowing. Because um, I-, I wonder if you 
I wonder if you wonder, how's that going to help? How does that help me uh, practically uh, when Paul appeals for me to know something? Well, guys, um, if you can flip back to Romans chapter 4. We're not going to read this. But Romans chapter 4 uh, in verses 16 through 21 is the account of Abraham and being told that he was going to sire a, another child at the ripe old age of 99. And I think his wife was 90. And yet we are told in this portion of, of, of Scripture, um, uh, beginning at verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, now the, the, the point is this, guys. Um, here is an example of a man who responds to a word that God has spoken to him in spite of things that he feels and senses in uh, his circumstances describe. That is, I'm 100 years old. How am I ever going to father a child and my wife and her womb is dead? And, you know, uh, everything about his circumstances militated against him believing that this would come true. But in spite of all those circumstances, he believed in that word of God. We understand it, don't we? Now, I'm saying to you this. In spite of all that you feel, in spite of all of the failures that you perform today, in spite of all of your inconsistencies, in spite of all of those skeletons that hang in your closet, in spite of all of the things that would... and, 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 and all of the whisperings that Satan gives you at night, in spite of all of those things that would, would fly into the face of this truth, know this! The old man that you were in Adam has been crucified. Just like Abraham had to say, well, you know, I look at it, I look at it, you know, you know, but I believe that. And he was applauded for having believed. I'm looking at you and I'm saying, Okay, the Apostle Paul is telling us, for us, uh, telling us to know something. What is it that we need to know? Well, we need to know that our old man has been crucified in the past. But Jimmy, I still have that this, that, and the other. Well, first of all, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But the old man that Paul has in view is this old man that I was in Adam. And I'm saying to you, you are supposed to know that to be true the same way that, um, that Abraham believed the Word of God about his siring a child in the upcoming days. Ladies and gentlemen, there are certain things that I know to be true only because I'm told them. For instance, uh, I was told in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Did anybody in here ever feel baptized into His death? How do you know that to be true? Because you were told it's true. That the work of regeneration in our lives produces this identity with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So, here's something else that by faith you are to know that the old man that you were in Adam is dead. And all those characteristics of that old man should be gone. You know those characteristics like um, 
insecurity, of, um, of, of wondering whether God really loved me, of, um, of thinking that I can never be good enough to earn his pleasure, all those things that characterized you in Adam. Those are dead. Those are dead. You need to know that. Now, um, I, I, I just say this real quickly. Uh, I needed something to write on here, but that's okay. Um, guys, do you see how the Apostle Paul is trying to motivate you to live godly lives? What is he doing? Is he saying, All right, folks, uh, here's the standards. Now let's get a book up. Let's go live them. You know, gang, I fear that so much preaching today is nothing more than moralisms. It is, you know, they turn to the book of Daniel and you see Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, Daniel's, you know, whipping up and he's facing all of the, the lions with faith and, and the preacher gets behind a pulpit and says, you see what I got? see what Daniel did? Are you that courageous? No, you're not that courageous. What fool would say you're as courageous as Daniel? Now, come out and be courageous like Daniel. Dare to be Daniel. That's foolishness. That's foolish preaching, ladies and gentlemen. Because you know what the Apostle Paul does in terms of trying to get you to live this holy life? He doesn't, he doesn't call you to some kind of moral standard. He reminds you of the provisions of the gospel. He says, just remember that you are joined to Christ by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that's supposed to prompt us and motivate us to avoid that godless life we used to live. I, I did this at the stage yesterday, and with this we'll close. Think about this. Think about your life as a timeline. Timeline. And then somewhere in there, plan a cross. That's the day you became a Christian. Now, what was it that was your primary need before you met Christ? It was the gospel. You needed to hear that Christ died for sinners. Now, on the other side of that cross, all your life since then, what now is your primary need? I'm telling you, in evangelicalism, we've been telling them that the primary need is for discipleship. Memorize more verses. You know, pray harder. I'm telling you that the need that you had before you came to know Christ was the gospel. The need that you have now that you've come to know Christ is the gospel. It's to go back and enjoy the great provisions that we are now joined and linked and in union with Christ. That's the thing that prompts us to higher heights of holiness, not raising another standard that we can jump higher over. To go back, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing, is using our position and our our affinity and our intimacy with Christ to, to spur us out of that, all the characteristics of that lifestyle that we used to be in, in Adam. The thing that you needed before you met Christ was the gospel. The thing that you need now that you have met Christ is to be reminded of the gospel in all of its beauties. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word will um, uh, in, enhance the souls of your people, that they might be fed and fat and full and joyous 
as they are reminded that because of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, we have been joined to Christ, and as such, all those characteristics of the old man are now dead. With an eye of faith, O oh God, grant us, grant us faith to believe that, like Abraham, believed what he was told. Do that for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen.